Welcome everyone and shalom from Jerusalem. I'm David Parsons, one of the vice presidents here at the International Christian Embassy Jerusalem and our senior spokesman. And I wanna welcome you wherever you are around the world to uh, the ICEJ weekly webinar coming to you uh, this time every week from the capital of Israel here, our headquarters in Jerusalem. And this week, we're going to sort of continue uh, the uh, looking at uh, the region and some of the Israeli rapprochement with some of its Arab neighbors on the heels of the visit of uh, President Biden to uh, the region last week. Uh, around this time, we were covering, he was just finishing up two or three days in Israel, getting ready to head for Saudi Arabia. They had built up uh, a lot of expectation that there was gonna be a break, big breakthrough between Israel and the Saudis. There was some, some uh, good progress, but a bit of a disappointment in some circles that there wasn't uh, more accomplished by the time he uh, finished up in Saudi Arabia. So we're looking this week at the question, uh, are, are the Saudis really close to making peace, normalizing relations with Israel? And our guest analyst today is Avi Yorish. We're so glad to have you, Avi. Good to see you. David, good to see you. It's such a pleasure to be on your show. Thanks for having me on today. Shalom from, uh, shalom from Israel. Thank you. Thank you for your time. And uh, Avi, uh, for a little background on him, he's uh, born in uh, America, but uh, moved to Israel with his family when he was young. So he's an Israeli-American citizen and author, wrote, uh, I think, one of his uh, more popular books is called Thou Shalt Innovate. He's an entrepreneur, investor in Israel's high-tech uh, business, a consultant, and also a member of the American Foreign Relations Council. So he's an analyst and advises companies and even governments on Israel and the region. He's made a number of TV uh, and media appearances uh, and written extensively in the mainstream press on business, political, and cultural issues. And I think uh, relevant to our topic, he's been very involved in the Abraham Accords, made many visits to the United Arab Emirates, Bahrain, some of the Gulf uh, Arab countries, and I think two visits to Saudi Arabia, including one just before the Biden visit. So Avi, welcome, and just start giving us a little of your background, why you started getting in, uh, engaging with uh, Arab business, political, uh, other leaders in the region, and uh, your involvement in these countries. So just by way of background, as you pointed out, I was born in the U.S., raised in Israel, and I've always had a, fascinating, a fascination with the Muslim world. As you'll recall, Israel in the 70s only had one television station, and my mother likes to joke that I was watching Egyptian movies from a very, very young age before the, between the hours of two and five on Friday afternoons in Israel. And um, really, as a, as a young adult and as an undergraduate student, started studying the region and then did my graduate work in Islamic history and Arabic and eventually found my way to living in Cairo, where that afforded me the opportunity to really travel around the entire Muslim world. I was a student at the American University in Cairo and at Al-Azhar University. Mm -hmm. Al-Azhar University, for your viewers that are not aware, is the oldest university in the world. It's about a thousand years old. Uh, has a lot of alum from Al-Qaeda. Uh, really is the uh, higher institution 
of Sunni learning. It's the most respected institution in the Sunni Muslim world. How many Jews have studied there? <laughs> uh, to the best of my knowledge, very few. I might be the only one I don't know, but certainly uh, I'm the only one in my circle that I know that uh, has actually spent time there. And then I studied Quran, Fiqh, Hadith. It really was an extraordinary experience. That was before 9-11. And then moved to DC, Washington, DC, about 20 years ago, where I worked in the think tank community and the government and have really spent my career specializing and looking at the Muslim slash Arab world. More recently, I, uh, I started a number of companies. Uh, really, I'm in the, the fintech payment space, which affords me the opportunity to really invest in high tech, uh, the fintech community, and spend some time in the, in the Arab slash Muslim world. As you pointed out, I uh, recently came back from a, uh, my most recent trip to Saudi Arabia, which took place in May of 2020, we're in 22, and, um, and had the chance to spend time in uh, Bahrain and Saudi Arabia, and was the, and led a delegation uh, to Bahrain of nearly uh, 75 CEOs from 13 different countries, and then went to Saudi Arabia uh, and led a delegation, a slightly small delegation, but still sizable, of over 50 CEOs, all of whom had a deep connection to the state of Israel, uh, many of whom had Israeli passports. We traveled to Saudi Arabia. Those of us with Israeli passports traveled there on a foreign passport. Uh, to the best of my knowledge, we were the first uh, delegation of uh, non-Muslims who visited the holy city of Medina for the first time in 1300 years. Mm-hmm. It afforded us the opportunity to really see the birthplace of Islam, the place where the Muslim prophet Muhammad is buried, along with two of his righteous caliphs, And uh, most of your viewers, I suspect, will not be aware of the fact that in Medina, I was not aware, in Medina, there is a uh, a pot waiting for Jesus, son of Mary. And so all of them are really, uh, those those, uh, four burial pots are one next to the other. Uh, Medina is a really special experience. We were very lucky to be afforded the opportunity to see the birthplace of Islam and really experience the, the power and the sublime energy of that particular city that shaped uh, certainly Islam, and I would say by extension, the world's uh, one of the world's most important civilizations. Um, spent time with the business community, with policymakers, with government officials, and uh, I, for one, am uh, I'm uh, very excited about the possibility of continued uh, the continued relationship between Arabs and Jews, between Israelis and Saudis, and the wider relationship with Israel and the wider Arab world. Mm-hmm. Um, you've sort of been uh, sort of an academic approach or consulting approach, understanding the Muslim Arab world from, for, uh, you know, many years. But uh, um, I want to focus in a little more on your role during the uh, Abraham Accords as they were being formed. You were sort of out of ahead of it. You were already visiting uh, United Arab Emirates, uh, Dubai, Abu Dhabi, some of these uh, uh, hubs of futuristic commerce, global, global hubs now of the, the, the new uh, global economy. So I, I certainly spent a lot of time in the Arab world. I, I really, as you think about Israel and its neighborhood, Israel is one of the most innovative places on the planet writ large to begin with. We have more startups combined than Canada, India, Japan, Korea, and the United Kingdom combined. As you know, uh, Israel has more uh, companies listed on the NASDAQ than any other country other than the United States and China. And Israel has been really playing a leading role in solving what I like to call these grand global challenges. Water, 
food, artificial intelligence, space, poverty, energy, so on and so forth. And what we're seeing here is the culmination of many, many years of work where there's a, an alignment of stars where I, I can't say, I wish I could say that folks in the region woke up one day and said, wow, it's time to make peace with the state of Israel because we love it. That would be a gross mischaracterization. What we're seeing here is an alignment of interests, both in countries that have already made peace with Israel. You have Jordan and uh, Egypt. Egypt made it in, 70, in 79, 80. Uh, Jordan in 1994. Then you have the four additional signees onto the Abraham Accords, which is Sudan, Morocco, Bahrain, and the UAE. And those four countries in particular, and many, many others, are very concerned about the, the, the role that Iran plays in the region today. Uh, they're really the, the they're, they're exporting their best asset, unfortunately, is terrorism. And they have sent, uh, they have sent that, that innovation to places like Lebanon, Syria, Iraq, and Yemen, among other places. And uh, what we're seeing here is those countries are concerned about the role that Iran plays. And when they look at the region, they're noticing that Israel is a country that is innovating and solving some of these great grand global challenges. And so when you, when you, when you realize that the future really does have a tremendous number of problems that we must address, folks all over the region, policymakers, government officials, royal courts, realize Israel really has what to offer. And some of these grand global challenges that we face are certainly in a shared region and one that we must, we, we can and must address together. Some of those challenges include water. Let's just take water, for example, Israel, a country that is over 60% desert, now has more water than it knows what to do with. I mean, really is a water superpower. And you look at countries, for example, like Iran. Iran has 80 million people and today points its missiles at Israel. In the next 10 years or so, over 50% of its population are going to become water refugees. Egypt, country that I had the great privilege to live in for quite some time, with a population of 100 million people, will in the next three, four, five years, scientists are predicting, will have a water problem of biblical proportions. In other words, you have 100 million people that are going to run out of water. And so when you look at some of these grand global challenges, Israel is well ahead of these challenges. And countries like Egypt and others in the region, Bahrain, UAE, and soon hopefully Saudi Arabia, will come to, I believe, rely on Israeli technology to solve some of these challenges and work together for the benefit of all of our region citizens and for the sake of our children and all the generations that come ahead of us. Yeah, a lot of the, the water ingenuity, uh, you know, some of it is drip irrigation, uh, water recycling, but a lot of it are, is, is the uh, desalination plants, which I understand Israel really pioneered the technology of reverse osmosis. Uh, we have one back home uh, in my uh, home uh, area, the Outer Banks, that without these desalination plants, our area could not have grown and handled all the tourists coming out to our islands there. And but the UAE, some of these Arab countries, they've they've had these, and do they know it was Israeli technology inside? So I will say this: you you point out correctly. Reverse osmosis was actually created in the U.S. In the, uh, in the early 1960s, I'm sorry, in the, in the era 50s, 60s. And then it was actually perfected. The man who, who created reverse osmosis moved to Israel and perfected it at Ben-Gurion University. Israel today, for your listeners, they should uh, be aware that Israel has five desalination plants, but that provides over 50% of the country's potable water needs. But that, the interesting fact is actually that Israel has built over 
300 desalination plants around the world, including the largest desalination plant in the Western Hemisphere in California, the largest desalination plant in India, the largest desalination plant in China. We're really experiencing what Israel has managed to leverage what I call water diplomacy in order to really move the dial on some of these issues and uh, get ahead of the innovation game. And so, yes, you're mm -hmm. absolutely correct that these Arab countries are certainly looking to Israel, uh, not only in terms of reverse osmosis, but drip irrigation, as you point out, which was innovated in Israel, recycling of wastewater. Israel is the, the leading country in the world for, re for recycling wastewater at 90%. You have the two-button toilet. And of course, you have a company called like Takadu, which is using big data, which now produces, which allows Israel to produce more water than it knows what to do with. So certainly, Arab regimes are, are aware and they're watching and they know, look, let's just take a zoom. Let's take zoom out for just a second, David. We're now in 2022. By 2030, we've got some amazing things that are going to take place in the next eight years. By 2030, for the first time, a computer is going to process faster than a human brain, which will allow us to have thoughts that we've never had before because we've been constrained by the speed of our brains. Mm -hmm. By 2030, we were going to have a human presence on the moon full time and on our way to Mars. By 2030, we're essentially going to be off of oil and primarily focused on alternative energy. By 2030, we'll likely uh, have solved a great number of cancers. We'll have electric vehicles proliferating the planet. We'll have autonomous vehicles and basically driving us around the world. We're in for a brand new world in the next mm -hmm. decade. By, 20, uh, by 2200, uh, in the next, let's just say the next 70, 80 years, scientists are predicting, sorry, 2100, not 2200, by 2100, scientists are predicting that we're going to experience 50,000 years of human change, David. Written mm -hmm. history really is only around for 4,000 years. The children of Israel were walking around, running mm -hmm. around the Sinai Peninsula around 3,900 years ago. We're going to experience 50,000 years of human change in the next 80 years. We almost mm -hmm. can't, we can't even put that together. The world that we inherited, me and you, is not the world that our grandchildren are going to inherit. Mm -hmm. And frankly, Arab regimes are aware of this, as are the people of Israel. And so countries that are relying on innovation and tech, their futures are bright. Mm -hmm. And our neighbors in the, uh, in the Arab world are looking to innovations to really help solve some of their own problems and give their children and their grandchildren a much better world than the one that we inherited. So the, the Abraham Accords, you were already seeing this and uh, there were like quiet business trade relations between Israel and the Emirates in particular before the Abraham Accords, but it was the Iranian threat. It was this draw, the magnet of, of high tech to Israel, but isn't there some religious aspect uh, this, um, center that the, the Emiratis are building with a mosque and a church and a, and a, a synagogue side by side. It's, it's fascinating for us as Christians, but also kind of troubling. <laughs> look, I, I look at this as being a very positive development. You have a region of the world that has really one of the bastions of civilization. If you look at 1200, 1300, you had math, science, chemistry, physics, history, like really like a global leader when it comes to all things that relate to civilization. And now we're seeing, we're seeing slowly but surely a place that is beginning to understand that diversity is important and that really welcoming and respecting all religions is, uh, is an important human value. I think the fact that you're bringing a church and a synagogue to the UAE and other places in the Muslim world is, a, is an extraordinarily positive development. 
and one that we ought to celebrate. Uh, we're seeing tremendous transformation in Saudi Arabia today. Uh, you really are seeing a country that is on the move. It's not the same country that we saw five, 10 years ago. What's interesting about Saudi Arabia in this regard in particular is something called uh, 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 an initiative. 2030 initiative. Vision 2030, which was uh, initiated by the Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman. Vision 2030 is an extraordinary is an extraordinary initiative that, that essentially is pushing that country to move off and to move off of and diversify itself off of the oil economy. This was very interesting. He, Mohammed bin Salman put online, any of the viewers can go to vision 2030.sa, and they can see the goals and objectives that the country wants to achieve by 2030. And they are robust. It really is an extraordinary vision. And the interesting thing is that everyone in the kingdom is talking about Vision 2030. Whether they will achieve each and every one of their objectives, maybe yes, maybe no. But the, the ability to galvanize an entire society and think, yes, we must move off of oil. Yes, we must diversify our economy and work on agro, work on technology, work on innovation, bring the best and the brightest to the kingdom. That really, I think, is the, that really is the innovation behind putting together Vision 2030 and putting pen to paper and listing the innovations that they want to actually achieve. Um, the um, difference between, you know, engaging with the Emiratis, the Bahrainis, and the Saudis, there's a certain reason why the Saudis are lagging behind maybe five to 10 years in this sort of reconciliation process. Can you explain what makes the Saudis different? I, I know it has a lot to do with Mecca and Medina. So you have here as the, the birthplace of the slam and as the country charged with the, uh, uh, the guardianship over the two holiest city of the slam, Mecca and Medina, this is a country that has traditionally been very conservative, has moved relatively slowly in this regard, and frankly has seen uh, the great importance of, of really playing an important role in trying to push uh, a negotiated solution to the uh, Arab-Palestinian problem. As far back as uh, 2002, Saudi Arabia put together what they call the Arab Peace Initiative, uh, the Saudi plan, which essentially said that the, net, that the day Israel makes peace with the Palestinian, 22 Arab states will create embassies in Jerusalem and make peace with Israel. Uh, that unfortunately uh, has not gone according to plan. Uh, Israel for its part, did not pay much attention to the Saudi plan. Uh, the Saudi plan did come with some, some strings attached, which was essentially uh, uh, Israel needed to pull back to the 67 borders. Uh, there was the negotiated solution to Jerusalem. There was language in there that made Israel extraordinarily uncomfortable. And so Israel did not react to the plan. And you could make an argument for good or for bad. Israel pursued a, uh, a, an approach that essentially said after a certain point, Palestinians aren't going to come to the table. Certainly that was clear after the second intifada. We're going to really put our chips, all of our chips down on creating peace agreements with Arab regimes that are, uh, that will come to the fold first. And that will give the cover to the Palestinians that they need in order to make a peace agreement. Mm -hmm. uh, we are today seeing Israel creating a peace agreement with six different countries. Now, I will tell you that our delegation of over 50 Jewish CEOs associated with Israel received an extraordinarily warm welcome. Now, first, we went to Bahrain, a country that has a peace agreement with Israel. 
We felt, we felt it was important to honor and respect the fact that here's a country that has made a peace agreement with Israel and then travel to Saudi Arabia. And we received uh, really open arms. We were received with open arms. And I think the reason we were received with open arms is because we made very clear that the goal of this mission, this delegation was to cross the proverbial bridge, was to seek to understand and then be understood, you know, uh, referencing like Stephen Covey and the seven habits of highly effective people. We came to really cross the bridge, engage in mutual respect, mutual understanding, and a vision of tolerance, and with a message of peace from, from Israel and from the Jewish people. And when you have that, it really feels like individuals will open their arms to you. How do you, once someone comes with a message of peace and a mutual understanding, that really does engender good karma. And the fact that we went to Medina, we were, uh, we really made a strong push to go to Medina. Um, the signs not allowing Muslims were moved just before we arrived. It's and within we were, the holy envelope that uh, no non-Muslims are really allowed in Mecca and even Medina's kind of sacred. Day. Correct. So up until the time that we went, certainly there was an, a holy envelope around Mecca. Uh, there was a holy uh, envelope around Medina. Those signs came down just before we went. We coordinated our visit with the relevant authorities and we had the great privilege to be the first. And I feel we felt as CEOs, as business officials, that we wanted to really telegraph goodwill to the nearly 1.5 billion Muslims on the planet today in changing the paradigm. That we really wanted to telegraph, we're here to understand you. We're here to see you. every human, you know, I call it the three S's, wants to feel safe, seen, and supported. The idea of going to the holiest of holy, or the, the place that we could go, that was the birthplace of the sun, because we've not been to Mecca, is to really telegraph, yes, we're here to see you. We're here to make you feel safe, seen, and supported. And we can have a different dialogue than the one that we've had until now. And I truly believe that uh, we in the years ahead will see normalization. We will see a peace agreement between Saudi Arabia and Israel. It's not a question of if, in my mind, it's a question of when. Uh, you brought up at the very beginning of the show that there are a lot of people in Israel that are somewhat disappointed. You know, we joked just before I came on air that the uh, the Jewish people's greatest contribution, Shimon Peres used to say, the late uh, mm-hmm. the, pro, the late president of Israel, was uh, our the Jewish people are only happy when they're unhappy. But the greatest innovation that the uh, that the Jewish people brought to the world was the sense of dissatisfaction. Uh, mm-hmm. And um, but if you really zoom out. What we have achieved in the last few years is, is nothing short of extraordinary. You have <laughs> agreements with six Arab regimes. You had a direct flight that went from Tel Aviv to Jeddah. You have quietly, you have uh, Israelis uh, that are going to the kingdom and that are beginning slowly to build a bridge to peace. I look at that and I celebrate. And I frankly, I... I I say Shekhyana, which is the classic Jewish prayer of giving thanks for uh, being being a, a witness to this time and this time and uh, this time and place. We are all uh, you and me and all of your listeners. We have been granted the great privilege and obligation to act as engineers of history and to bring more light to the world. Now, I don't know if any of your viewers are going to build the next great startup or will join one of the delegations that comes to Saudi Arabia. But uh, I will say this, the, the first prime minister of Israel stood at the lectern 74 years ago and said the following. He said two things. One, he said, after 2,000 years of waiting, 
members of the Jewish faith are welcome to come home at any time. They can hop on a flight and come pick up their passport at Ben Gurion Airport. That really is a Shechianu amazing moment. And one of which I am grateful for every day. And that's a, that is a right that no one will ever be able to take again. That right will be given to our children, to our grandchildren, and our grandchildren's grandchildren. That we've been, we, the hope has been around for 2,000 years. We've been waiting for this moment for 2,000 years. And that right will never, ever be taken away again. Ben-Gurion stood at the lecture and he said something else, which I think about on a regular basis. He said, the state of Israel has been granted the great privilege and the obligation to tackle some of the gravest challenges of the 20th century. He seemed to be saying that one of the most sublime hopes of the state of Israel was to not only protect and enrich its own citizens, but to go beyond the borders of the state of Israel and make, that, make it a better place. And Israel is doing that today through technology. It's exporting its best asset tech in order to cure the sick, feed the hungry, help the needy. And our, this is a, a long-standing hope of the Jewish people. Our most sublime hope for since the time of the prophets was to cure the sick, feed the hungry, help the needy, and bring more light to the world. And that's an obligation that me and you share as Jews and Christians. And frankly, it's the yearning of all of the wisdom traditions. That's not exclusive to Christianity and Judaism, but to Islam, to Hinduism, to Buddhism, this idea of bringing light to the world. And so as your viewers think about this notion of light, we have this great privilege and obligation, all of us collectively, to bring more light to the world. And so I don't know whether your viewers are going to build a great startup or come to Saudi Arabia. I do know, however, that they can bring more light to the world by smiling at a human being, by calling their mother and telling her you love her, or to visit someone who's ill. We, we can bring more light. And the moment you realize that we have this great privilege obligation to bring light to the world, and that's why we're on the planet, the world changes. At least that is the way I feel in, in my experience. Yeah, I, I'd note here that uh, there have been uh, several uh, high-profile evangelical Christian delegations that have gone uh, and met with Saudi leaders over recent years, before and since the Abraham Accords. And uh, there seemed to be this openness, part of this Vision 2030 is to open up uh, Saudi Arabia, most of the peninsula, to uh, foreign tourism, including Christians. And some of them are interested in whether uh, Mount Sinai is there in northern Saudi Arabia. Some claim that, and we uh, at our Feast of Tabernacles a couple of years ago, we had a live link to a Christian leader who was there at that mountain near the Red Sea coming live to us saying, we're in Saudi Arabia, we're Christians there. Uh, they've invited us here and uh, we're reporting to you in Jerusalem that the door is open. So we've seen some of this opening up. I, I read something about um, your recent visit. You said it's May, five, six weeks before Biden visit. Um, your visit to Saudi Arabia, where you got to engage with some of these leaders. You're not only talking high-tech investment, what you can do together, but they were asking you some questions, uh, you know, tough questions about why Israel didn't accept the 2002 Saudi plan, and you got to try and give the best answers you, you could. I suppose it involves the that the Palestinians are still educating towards hate, still saying we stole the land, not recognizing that the Jews were indigenous to the land. And this problem of the, um, the 
uh, I think the Saudi plan called for a just resolution of the Palestinian refugee problem, which the Palestinians insist means a right of return. I mean, how did those conversations go? Look, I will say this, the, the conversations were, were done with compassion. They were done with understanding. They were done in a, in a level of, of nuance that surprised me. Uh, these are, we dealt with uh, really the who's who of Saudi society. And while I would say the questions weren't always easy, the dialogue between us was uh, one of family coming back together. Uh, there was a sense that uh, we were cousins. We were really members of the same family. I'll share with you, uh, just before I left for Saudi Arabia, my oldest child brought me in for one last hug. Okay, And uh, before our trip, we had a series of conversations with our children about what Saudi Arabia is, what it's not, some of the challenges that it faces, the issues of human rights and women's rights, and really the whole gamut of conversations about what it means to to build bridges to countries like Saudi Arabia. And I came in for one more hug. And um, I said, uh, I hope that one day you will also build a bridge to, uh, to the Arab world and visit some of these places and that you'll have a chance to interact with our cousins. He says to me, daddy, they're not our cousins. I said, what are you talking about? Of course they're our cousins. Said, daddy, the Torah, the Bible says they're not our cousins. The Torah says they're our, they're our brothers. Yeah, And um, that really is, I think, captures, he captured a beautiful sentiment and frankly, Isaac and Ishmael. Yeah. And he, and that was really how we felt coming to Saudi Arabia. This was, uh, this was in many cases, the first time these individuals had interacted in such a deep level with Jews slash Israelis. There was a knowledge in the room, certainly of many individuals of Israeli politics, some of the deeper concerns and issues that the state of Israel was facing. Um, it really was a nuanced, compassionate, dare I say, loving conversation. It, many of the members of our delegation had not spent time in the Arab world before. Uh, this was, for many of them, their first time, and really opened their eyes to a, a brand new reality. I'll share with you two vignettes, if you'll allow me. One, uh, one of the members of our delegation uh, was the CEO of an extraordinarily... Uh, uh, shall I say, large and global corporation, okay? Uh, uh, his, uh, the security officer of his company basically said to him, you really, you must not go. It's a one-way ticket in. I don't know whether you will come out. You have, uh, in addition to having a foreign passport, you have an Israeli passport with a very Jewish slash Israeli name. Uh, it's one thing to go in. It's, a, it's quite another to come out. And uh, we've, explain the security arrangements and all the things that we had put in place. And on our first night uh, at, uh, at a beautiful location at a beautiful setting, I came over to the CEO and I put my hands on his shoulders. I said, what do you think? He said, I'm so sorry, I can't talk to you right now. What do you mean I can't talk to you right now? My mind is blown. I really, I, I just, I'm having a hard time putting all the pieces together. Mm-hmm. And it really was, it was not, it was nothing like he expected. It really is a very, very interesting cognitive dissonance sort of place. When we were flying to Medina, I'll share with you, one of the other members of the delegation uh, had, I don't, uh, was very, very nervous about coming to Saudi. Uh, They have multiple children and was very concerned that they may or may not see their children again. We're very, very scared and took quite a bit of convincing, gently, but to come. But ultimately the idea of building bridges to 
uh, our Arab cousins, if you like, overtook all of their fears and they came into the kingdom. And uh, on our flight to Medina, I walked over to this couple and I, uh, I, uh, I was pulled in. And this member said to me, you see this individual sitting next to me? I said, sure. This individual was a, a woman who wore the niqab, a very, uh, the strict Muslim garb with the, uh, with, with it's black, with the slit only for the eyes. This individual said to me, up until today, I would have asked to move seats and I would have been extraordinarily uncomfortable. I, I really would not have been very happy sitting. And you know what, how I feel now? I look at this woman and I realize she is me and I am her. We're one and the same. And you could tell that for every one of the CEOs that came on this particular delegation, they'll never view the Arab world the same. They'll never view that part of the world the same way. They won't look at Muslims the same way. They won't look at Arabs the same way. And that idea of seeing the other for who they are was really an extraordinary moment in time. The idea of crossing the proverbial bridge and seeing the other in their home for who they are not only changes us to them, but them to us. And uh, the sense of family abounded. And I, I felt it was an extraordinary experience for members of our delegation and all the individuals that came into contact with us. Yeah. I, I wanna get into uh, the Biden visit last week because leading up to it, even four or five weeks out, there were these disclosures, uh, leaks in the press that, uh, um, you know, this uh, this visit by Biden was going to have a, there's going to be a big moment in the Israeli-Saudi relationship. And um, that even uh, the IDF chief of staff, Kohavi, had even met with all these Arab generals, his counterparts for all these Arab countries, including the Saudis. And the Saudis may even take this new iron beam laser weapon that Israel is developing as part of some regional defense shield against Iran and really building it up. The Americans were doing it. I think the, some Israeli officials joined in, uh, you know, really raising expectations. And then Biden comes, uh, does it even more while he was here before he flew to Saudi Arabia, said uh, this thing of, of the Saudis opening up their airspace. That news was already coming out to Israeli flights, not specifically, it didn't say Israeli flights, but to all international carriers. We know what it meant. He said, this is a big deal. The first tangible step on the path of what I hope will eventually be a broader normalization of relations. He lands there and the, and uh, the Saudi foreign minister on his way there said, this has nothing to do with diplomatic ties with Israel, throwing a lot of cold water. What were your expectations and how, what was the level of disappointment with the results of Biden uh, coming to Saudi Arabia? I, for one, am extraordinarily pleased. I really think you've got to zoom out. Uh, you have, they signed 18 different agreements between the United States and Saudi Arabia. I should point out that uh, one of those agreements involved uh, solar energy, alternative energy, where they're now working with a, uh, an Israeli company. That's something that's been quiet, but certainly public. It's a, uh, the R&D centers in Israel was founded by, Israeli, uh, by Israelis. Uh, the corporation is in the United States, headquartered in the US. Uh, it allows uh, both sides some plausible deniability, which is fine. We're slowly, surely, slowly but surely, I believe on the march towards normalization and peace, 
couldn't have been more clear that you're allowing overland flights between uh, India, the Far East, and Asia. I mean, that really is unprecedented. That exposes all of Saudi Arabia to Israeli aircraft and whatever they want to do. So I think we should judge uh, by by actions rather than words at this point. Uh, Mm -hmm. We use the word talk is cheap. But if you look at actual facts on the ground, overland over over flight flights over the kingdom of Saudi Arabia are now allowed and will start very 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 soon. Uh, there will be a direct flight for the first time in history between Tel Aviv and uh, I'm going to assume somewhere in Saudi Arabia for allowing Muslims to make the uh, the annual pilgrimage to uh, Hajj. If you had told me, uh, David, I don't know. Let's just say five years ago. Okay, or 10 years ago, you would have, and I would have told you that there'd be overland flights, there'd be flights over the kingdom of Saudi Arabia, and there'd be a direct flight between without Taliban. a peace agreement with the Palestinians. You would have been, you would have said, Wow, there's no way you would have looked at me like I was cuckoo. And so, I really I, I think we have to judge this in terms of deeds and not words, and uh, and say, We are on the march. This was unthinkable a few years ago, and slowly but surely. Slowly but surely, I, uh, I do not take the position. Uh, Jews are only happy when they're unhappy. Israel is only, un- is only happy when it's unhappy. I got to tell you, we must have a very, very happy country here. And, uh, you know, on the, on the happiness index, it actually shows. Israel is one of the top 10 happy countries in the world. We are seeing a slow march to peace. There are countries that are already uh, making noises to come into the Abraham Accords, including, I should point out, non-Arab countries like Somalia, like Indonesia, like Oman, uh, in the years ahead, I, I truly am a, I'm a believer that uh, more countries will come in. And for all the reasons that we talked about, yes, they, uh, they're afraid of Iran. And yes, they want the technology. And yes, they believe that making peace with Israel will ultimately benefits their own strategic interests for them, their citizens, and all generations to come. And that's the way states operate. It's in their interest. And Israel has made it so by creating all this technology, I always say our moment has arrived. We've waited for this moment for 2,000 years. You want to say we've waited for this moment for 74? Same, same. You know, mm-hmm. the hope has been around for 2,000 years, and we've certainly as a country been around for 74 years. Mm-hmm. Our moment has arrived, and we've now mm-hmm. had this great privilege and obligation to tackle some of the gravest challenges of the 21st century. Mm-hmm. When it comes to water, agriculture, artificial intelligence, space, poverty, energy, so on and so forth, David, our best days are ahead. That's not to say that Israel is a paradise and it's not to say that the region is a paradise. We have been blessed with lots of problems in this country and lots of problems in the region. Problems between the very rich and the very poor, problems with resource scarcity, problems with our Arab neighbors, problems galore. But let's zoom out and let's, let's really see the situation for what it is. I believe that we are living in the best era ever of humanity. Mm-hmm. And uh, we are for the first time in human history we have the ability to really fundamentally leveraging technology chart our destiny. Mm-hmm. And that, that is unprecedented. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You mentioned uh, 18 different agreements reached between the U.S. and the Saudis, and some of it affects Israel. I think there are a lot of things going on behind the scenes, like Israel's in the process of supplying its natural gas from its deposits offshore, all the way through Egypt, through Jordan, on and to Lebanon, controlled by Hezbollah, who wants to attack those same gas platforms. 
that there are things going on in the region, tectonic, slow, uh, but perhaps some of the problem that Biden ran into is that he and his team, in order to get some sort of win here on this visit, because he's so weak politically, is that he sort of exposed some of these things, these talks between the, the Saudi Israeli generals, other generals of the region, things like that, that uh, it's best to keep it quiet. And maybe the Saudis were a little upset by it because it was something of a cold shoulder that Biden received there when he asked about the Saudi, uh, the, the Saudi uh, dissident journalist Khashoggi uh, from the Washington Post. Uh, uh, he got uh, a sharp answer about the Al Jazeera um, reporter killed here in Israel and even the Abu Ghraib prison in Iraq and that whole fiasco years ago of the U.S. torturing Arab prisoners. We are certainly seeing a new era. Um, it's uh, the president of the United States certainly uh, raised issues that were important on his conscience. Yeah. Uh, the Saudi um, crown prince, Hamid bin Salman, gave the president a piece of his mind. But ultimately, as I look at this, as I look at this dance of intimacy, as I call it, mm-hmm. we are marching in the right direction. We are seeing agreements. Uh, I, for one, am extraordinarily happy that these things are finally beginning to see the light of day. Mm-hmm. Uh, we are seeing some of the fruits of our labor exposed. And ultimately, that is a good thing. It's good to finally understand that the region is moving in the right direction. There are those that are skeptical of the direction that uh, this, uh, these talks are going in in Israel. Others are skeptical around the world. Uh, I'm a firm believer that uh, our, our best days are ahead, David. The, the general direction is, is, is positive. You have, to, you have to say that even some of the impact here in Israel, that if Israel is going to normalize relations with some of these Arab countries that have been hostile in the past, uh, it's time to uh, for Israel, Israel, the government, the Jewish majority to normalize relations with the Israeli Arabs and vice versa. So, you know, the, the deeper involvement of Arabs in Israeli political life here. I think overall it's a it's a good uh, development, uh, but it takes a little time for their uh, their democratic uh, senses and institution to mature. Um, why so, did the? Yeah, I just pause on that point, David. We really, when you look at Israel, it has all the tools necessary in order to into, to really s- s- to go from a startup nation to mm-hmm. a scale up nation, and ultimately to a scale up region. We have twenty percent of Israel uh, Israeli population are Arabs. Uh, you did see in this last government. A, an alliance. Some have criticized that alliance. Mm-hmm. Uh, it ultimately speaks to the, the will of the Israeli people to, to really work th- through its entire population, Arabs mm-hmm. and Jews, mm-hmm. Christians, Jews, and Muslims, in order to work together. Is it perfect? No. But I always say that the diversity of the population of the state of Israel ultimately is the secret behind its success and its technological prowess. If you look at many of the innovations that have come out of Israel in the last few years, the secret of its success is its diversity. And ultimately, I believe, will be one of the keys to the success of creating a scale-up nation and a scale-up region. Mm-hmm. Um, how, uh, where next with the Abraham Accords, where next with the Israel-Saudi relations? 
I uh, left my crystal ball back at home in, uh, in <laughs> Jerusalem, uh, David. Um, I will say this. I think we're in for an extraordinary ride. Uh, we, are, we, are on the, we are solving these regional grand global challenges. You're going to continue to see Israel uh, really leverage its best asset tech for the benefit of its own citizens and for the benefit of citizens both close and far from the borders mm -hmm. of the state of Israel. I believe you will continue to see Arab nations and Muslim nations and just Arab nations that are, not, that are close and far from Indonesia, which has the largest Muslim population in the world, I think roughly 270 million people. I believe you will see a peace agreement in the years ahead. Um, places like Somalia. We are going to see a flurry of diplomatic activity in the years ahead. And I, uh, I'm excited. Countries that are innovating, their futures are very, very bright, David. And ultimately, mm -hmm. our best days are ahead. I would encourage your viewers to not take my word for it, but come to Israel. Come mm -hmm. on, your next, on your next trip to Israel, don't only come to the traditional places. Don't only come to the Kotel and the Church of the Holy Sepulchre and Nazareth and uh, uh, one of the areas where, where uh, Jesus, son of Mary, supposedly had his baptismal site. There's all these amazing things to see. But in addition to the historic sites, I would encourage your viewers to come to places like, for example, the headquarters of United Rescue. In the entrance of Jerusalem, you have uh, uh, United Rescue, which is a nonprofit of volunteers, 6,000 volunteers, Muslims, Christians, and Jews, that each of them have this app like Uber, which mm -hmm. uh, geospatially locates the five nearest emergency responders. And they've got these ambucycles, which will bring mm -hmm. you to the scene of a medical emergency. Uh, David, I don't know if you, your viewers are aware, but the national average anywhere to bring an EMT to Israel, uh, to the scene of a medical emergency in Israel, is three minutes. And in every major city, it's 90 seconds. Come and see the headquarters of United Rescue, where you have Muslims, Christians, and Jews working together. On your next trip to Nazareth, go and see Imad and Reem Yunus, uh, an Israeli-Arab couple that were the innovators behind the GPS for the brain, which is used in hundreds of thousands of medical institutions around the world, which is used to treat Parkinson's, which uses sound technology to basically pulse the brain and uh, reduce the symptoms associated with Parkinson's, a central, a central tremor in Tourette's. Next time your viewers are in Israel, Come to the Weizmann Institute, come to the Technion, see the, the power of diversity where it is Muslims, Christians, and Jews working together. That ultimately, the most sublime hope of the state of Israel is to make the world a better place. And that is a narrative that I'm, I, I don't think is the, is the dominant narrative around the world. People don't generally think of Israel as being uh, uh, an ecosystem that leverages all of its citizens, Christians, Muslims, and Jews for the benefit of humanity. I encourage your viewers to come see it for themselves. David, you know that being in Jerusalem, you know that this is the, mm -hmm. I would say the, the heart and soul, the most sublime hope of the country. Is it perfect? No. Mm -hmm. I, I will say that what, what binds together the innovators that I feature in my last book, Thou Shalt Innovate, which is now out in nearly 40 languages, is not, uh, is not religion, money, or stature but is a, a deep desire to make the world a better place and bring more light to the world. And that ultimately, I think, is the wonderful story of the state of Israel, one that we ought to celebrate and one that your viewers ought to see for themselves. And ultimately, the story, the narrative that I hope that will be passed on to the next generation, because that is the ultimate hope of the state of Israel. And it's what will bind and bound all generations to come. 
to the deepest held aspirations of the state of Israel. Okay, you, you mentioned uh, Jerusalem. We're going to end on a, a question about uh, Jerusalem in terms of Israel-Saudi relations. I think uh, we, you, we had you uh, featured at our Envision conference for pastors, ministry leaders back in January, February, and I asked you then, uh, was there any uh, part of the Abraham Accords, any secret accord or side deal concerning uh, Jerusalem. I know there's an attempt to increase Muslim pilgrimage to Jerusalem. Israel seems to be all for that, but it came up in our uh, show last week. Uh, our, our guest was Professor Eitan Gilboa from Bar-Ilan University. He's lecturing now at UCLA, Harvard, all, all across America, one of Israel's leading experts on uh, U.S.-Israel relations. But, uh, you know, I ask him, do the, do the Saudis have some interest in Jerusalem? And is there a temptation for Israel to agree, even quietly, to some sort of concessions regarding the Temple Mount or whatever in order to have peace with the Saudis? I think it's a moment where that question might come up. And, of course, our Christian listeners, uh, viewers here, are very interested in that. And Professor Gilboa's answer, I was quite surprised for someone who's sort of on the right, the, the nationalist camp. Uh, he, he said it's the Palestinians, the Jordanians, the Moroccans are competing for, you know, custodianship of the Muslim holy sites in Jerusalem. But even the Saudis, they may be interested. And what, what is there, do you know or can you sense any interest among the Saudis to play some role in Jerusalem? Uh, do they do they ask about it? Are they interested in coming? Certainly, uh, Saudis are um, are interested in coming. They express a hope and desire when the, when a peace is reached to come. There have been already Saudis that have come quietly to Israel. Um, uh, whether there's an interest or not, I really as a, that really I'm not I'm not sure that is a conversation that we ought that we as members of the Jewish community ought to be engaging in. Uh, we certainly can engage in in terms of once uh, peace agreements are being held. There have been long-standing rivalries between the Palestinians, the Jordanians, the Saudis, and the Moroccans to custodianship to custodial. To the, to, who is the rightful custodian over the Temple Mount? That we have our uh, we have our own problems to address, David. I'm not <laughs> sure that uh, we ought to stick our head into that particular um, bed of thorns. Mm -hmm. uh, with that said, this is this is a dialogue that will happen in the years ahead. Um, the Temple Mount is a hotly contested issue in the Muslim world, in the Jewish world, in the Christian world. It is the one of the birthplaces of civilizations and one that I, I believe firmly that we ought to deal with, with compassion, respect, and understanding. Uh, this, too, I believe, is an issue that we can and must solve mm -hmm. for the sake of our children and all generations to come. Jerusalem, one of the one of the meanings of Jerusalem, of course, is this the city of peace. Uh, it has been anything but a city of peace for many, many, many years, but one that we must aspire to really institute its full name, the meaning of the name, and one that I think we have the possibility of really engaging in the years and ahead. We've been granted the great privilege and obligation in, in trying to tackle that challenge as well. It is an opportunity. Shimon uh, Perez, who I'm a great admirer of, 
used to say that uh, in every crisis, there's an opportunity. David, we have a great opportunity. We are the generation that can't solve these issues. And I, I, I derive no small measure of joy, uh, a, sense of, uh, a sense of enfranchisement, that we, we can solve this. This is a problem that is, I believe, solvable. Okay, we want to thank Avi Yorish for his time here on the ICEJ weekly webinar. We've been talking about the overall question of how close are the Saudis to really uh, reconciling, making peace with Israel, normalizing relations. Avi's uh, basically told us it's a process that's going on behind the scenes. Uh, it may uh, be a bit of a slow walk for now, but they'll catch up to some of these other Arab countries that he's been engaging with. And we really appreciate your time uh, and insights, Avi. David, thanks so much for having me on your show. I appreciate it and look forward to seeing you soon. All the best in your travels and your endeavors and, uh, and in uh, helping to reconcile these nations to, to Israel in many different ways. And uh, we just want to uh, invite you to uh, join us next week, uh, next Thursday, uh, here again, 4 p.m. Israel time for our ICEJ weekly webinar. We'll take up another fascinating topic then. Next Wednesday, 4 p.m., we have our global prayer gathering. Uh, join Christians from around the world in praying for Israel, the region, and for the move of God in your own country. And of course, I need to mention the upcoming Feast of Tabernacles 2022 here in Jerusalem in, in October, the 9th through 16th of October. You need to be here and come up, ascend to Jerusalem to worship the Lord at the feast, just as the prophet Zechariah envisioned. We're going to start out with two days on the Sea of Galilee, worship concerts right there on the Sea of Galilee, a beautiful setting, and then come up to Jerusalem to uh, uh, express solidarity with Israel and to worship the Lord here in this incredible city. And we're going to wind up down on the Gaza border planting trees to re-green some of the areas burned by fire kites and also to, um, to help shield and protect the line of sight from Gaza for some of the communities down there. So we're gonna have a nice solidarity rally at the end of this year's feast. You wanna be a part of this. Uh, so please join us for our Land of Promise Feast of Tabernacles this October here in Jerusalem. God bless you from Jerusalem.